Did democracy go mad during the pandemic? Has fear and loathing disordered the democratic mind? Can the history of emotions help us recover the mental health of what we once knew as democracy? The world is in a crisis it has not seen for 100 years. Old assumptions about who rules the world and how they rule are changing. Calm reflections on history can help us through this crisis. On the Burning Archive, I offer calm reflections on history to help you through this crisis. This week on the Burning Archive, I am talking about the coronavirus pandemic. Of course, sensitively, respectfully, and empathetically. I hope to offer a calm, fresh perspective on the impact of the pandemic years on the health of democracy. Did fear and loathing wreck the mental health of democracy after 2020? And can the democratic mind recover? They are the questions on today's Burning Archive. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. I am Jeff Rich, an independent author and podcaster, and I do my podcast, The Burning Archive podcast, where the past is not dead. The past is not even past. From the unique perspective of a retired government official and historian who is curious about all the world's cultural traditions of responsible statecraft. And in this episode, I'm talking about uh, one of the biggest issues of the multipolar world of the last few years, the coronavirus pandemic. Still a sensitive topic, and I will approach it sensitively. But what I really want to focus on is its impact on the health of our democracy, the mental health of our democracy and our society. Uh, Now, we've all had some pretty intense experiences during this time, and we all have our personal insights and perspectives, uh, some quite deeply held. And I in this podcast, do not want to talk about the many contentious issues of the pandemic, such as lockdowns or mandates, different treatments or the evidence for this or that policy. But rather, I want to focus on the implications for the mental health of our democracies, but a form of our self-governed societies and our experience of citizenship and government After the pandemic, uh, we experienced a form of collective trauma, in a way, both the illness itself and the response to the illness. And part of that trauma was also our emotional reaction to fellow citizens and to those who govern us. Indeed, it was also partly the emotional reaction of those who govern us to their fellow citizens. Uh, Part of the trauma was being locked down, an unprecedented global event that um, objectively and explicitly breached many basic rights recognised under the uh, Standard International Convention on Civil Human Rights. It was a trauma 
uh, a mental health crisis, not only in our personal lives, but in the mental health of our democracies or our states uh, or our polities, if listeners do not live in a democracy. And now, uh, in mid-2023, three years, more than three years since the start of the pandemic, we're all constructing narratives of memory, history and forgetting so that we can both uh, move, so we can go on and move on from the intensity of those COVID years. I sense uh, that many people want to forget or bury the COVID years, and fair enough too. We've all talked way, way too much about uh, coronavirus for the last three years, I think enough for a lifetime. But uh, as Paul Ricoeur wrote in uh, Memory, History and Forgetting, which I discussed in podcast number 97, looking at Emmanuel Macron's ideas about European sovereignty and his experience working with the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur and his philosophy of history, some level of not just memory and history, but also kind, compassionate forgetting is important to respond to uh, collective trauma. Still, I do think that our democracies, our polities and our shared cultural imagination are perhaps not processing the COVID years as well as they might yet. And for me, there is a particular ethical obligation for constructing some sort of narrative of these years, some sort of narrative of memory, history and forgetting, because I was a very, very minor government official uh, in the Victorian government between 2020 and 2020, late 2022, uh, who worked quite directly on quite a few aspects of the response to the pandemic. Uh, and although I'm not really going to go into all the details of that uh, in this episode, uh, broadly I do feel that uh, we, we, if I can say we uh, collectively for uh, government officials, uh, did a terrible thing. And there's something, I think, that perhaps requires some level of process of restoration with the community, some level of seeking forgiveness. I'm not going to go into the details of all that today, but you can see why I sort of sense some level of ethical obligation to, personal ethical obligation to reflect on the impact of this unprecedented dented time of fear and loathing in our shared lives together uh, and its impact on what we once knew as democracy. And I think I can offer a fairly rarely heard perspective, uh, that of a government official who's not defending what we did or 
uh, denouncing what we did, but has an unusual opportunity to observe, to develop some insight, and also to exercise empathy towards all the people affected in all the different ways by the coronavirus and the response to the coronavirus. Uh, So what I really want to do is to open up a bit of a dialogue um, to get us past the fixed positions on the pandemic and open up a bit of a dialogue about three ideas that together might suggest a path to constructive conversations of uh, forgiveness uh, and forgetting uh, and memory about what has just happened to us all with the pandemic and democracy. And first of all, it's to say that the pandemic delivered a shock to our ideas and practices of democracy. Secondly, that we can get some perspective on this by looking at the history of emotions. And third, after all the fear and loathing of the pandemic, our societies are not the same democracies we once thought they were. And we all need to work hard to reduce the amount of fear and loathing if we are both to recover our mental health and to build together some sort of decent shared life of the mind in our commonwealths. We could do that, of course, by looking at a fragment from the Burning Archive. So I'm following my traditional, or my newly traditional format in the Burning Archive of looking at a big issue, reflecting on, connecting it to some real history, and then looking at a text from the multipolar world that sheds some light on that from the cultural heritage of the multipolar world, a fragment from the Burning Archive. So they're all big issues, and hopefully I can offer something of a bridge of understanding whatever your incoming views on the pandemic, and that this podcast can contribute to a little bit of hope and healing and not just way too much fear and loathing. restrictions was to only go to a shopping centre or to um, like essential reasons, supermarket and takeaway food being one of them. Um, So casual contacts weren't allowed in stage three. How confident are you that stage four is actually going to, you know, that these people are going to listen to stage four? I think everyone can see how serious this is. We've got a state of disaster that's been declared. There's a curfew in place. Um, Very significant changes uh, in education will have very significant changes in workplaces tomorrow. In part, there's some shock and awe here uh, for people to genuinely understand uh, that it's a a super challenging phase that we're in. Uh, We knew that it would be harder. We knew that it wasn't like the first wave. Uh, But in part, that's because the fatigue that people have experienced and the sense of complacency about being able to go out and do shopping for... Um, for pleasure and not for absolute necessity uh, is part of the challenge. But I think the the message is loud and clear now that it's about essential uh, services, essential goods. 
So my uh, in-focus big issue from the multipolar world is the pandemic. And wow, what a big issue that was. And how it delivered a shock to our ideas and practices of democracy. And the clip that I just played over the music in the little interlude there was the Chief Health Officer of Victoria, Brett Sutton, announcing in August 2020, the long and severe lockdown uh, that began in Melbourne, including the introduction of a 10pm curfew. And I recall those words had a deep impact on me, on my sense of mental health, on my sense of the uh, authority and uh, of the government and the nature of the democratic society I was living in. I had never ever lived in a society which had a 10pm curfew. And in my view, no public health official should draw comparisons between their actions intended for the public good and the shock and awe tactics employed by America when it bombed Iraq and killed, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of civilians uh, in its um, mass bombing campaigns. Although that was a specific, I guess, example of how actions during the pandemic could have an impact on a sense of democracy and a sense of mental health, there were many such actions taken by governments and also the fear of the impacts of the virus itself, the fear of death, the fear of spreading infection that uh, had a deep impact on the mental health of our communities, the mental health of our democracies all around the world. The pandemic was a shock to democracy. Uh, in legal terms, emergency powers were introduced. In legal fact, there were violation of well-established rights and conventions of consent to treatment, um, well-established uh, conventions and rights of freedom of movement and other, other basic uh, human rights conventions. There was the shock of living for months and months at a time under lockdown, in Victoria's case, under curfew uh, and with highly visible enforcement uh, sometimes quite shocking enforcement. It was a shock. The pandemic created a shock to the life of the mind in democracy. Uh, there were rather severe information controls established over much media. People were banned. Uh, certain things were forbidden from being said and so on. There was generally a kind of a refusal to... Uh, debate or consider certain alternatives and people, even scientists who raise legitimate issues were often subjected to um, harassment, exclusion or, or smear campaigns. There was also significant deplatforming de or no platforming of people and it was taken to quite considerable extremes. It was a process that seemed to be underway anyhow. The whole sort of cancel culture phenomenon, but 
the, the pandemic gave it a new authority and a new motive and a new reason and a new energy. The pandemic was also a shock to the emotional regime of democracy. The emotional regime is a term from a certain type of history called the history of emotions that I will talk about a bit later, but describes the sort of, I guess, you know, rules, priorities, patterns of the expression of emotions in a society. And um, emotions, much more than ideas or ideologies or identities, are very much the bedrock or embodiment of our mental health. The pandemic inflicted a terrible burden on the mental health of children and young people. It inflicted a terrible burden on the mental health of many um, people who could not be with their loved ones at moments of birth, of death, of marriage, of significant moments in their lives. The fear of death and infection and of spreading infection affected many people quite profoundly. And there was also more than a little bit of emotional manipulation, of fear and loathing, conscious manipulation of people's emotions uh, by governments, by behavioural insights teams in governments. And the evidence of that is becoming clearer by the day. There was an extraordinary level of uh, negative labelling of people, anti-vaxxers or sheeple, tyrants and all the rest of it. And there was a lot of shaming and ostracism, of deplatforming and suppression of dialogue, thought and the free expression of opinion. This was a profound effect on the emotional tenor of democracies, of societies. I was personally both in my life as a citizen, I guess, or as my personal life, but also observing as a government official, observing what other government officials said, what various advocates said, what was said in the media. I was shocked by the extensive use of military metaphors by some public officials and many in the media. The, the idea that, you know, political leaders were wartime leaders, that we were conducting a war against the virus and that justified wartime measures, wartime propaganda measures, even if the war seemed at times to be conducted against the enemy within. I was shocked by the abusive rhetoric of mental illness applied to uh, people on all sides of the argument. People were described as nut jobs and crazies and all the other kinds of, of derogatory terms. And I was shocked, really, that so many people, uh, we were all shocked, I guess, we were all shocked by being these people who were deprived of so many opportunities for life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness to quote from, I think it's the American Declaration of Independence, one of those texts, fundamental texts 
of democracy. But the story was not just what the elites did, what doctors did, what governments were doing. The mental health of the democracy of our society was ultimately made up by the minds and behaviour of we the people. And I was puzzled by how variously people responded to this great social experiment. Would people follow the rules, practice? protect themselves with or without the rules? Would they comply, protest, resist, enforce or spy on their neighbours? Would they question, investigate, cheer, shout or scream? And I was intrigued, sometimes even appalled by how the people who govern, who I witnessed directly, sometimes responded to these diverse responses of people when they raised, fair enough, concerns, questions, doubts and arguments. So over the three years, a lot of bad things, I guess, happened for our democracies, regardless of, you know, how you feel about one or other policy employed during the COVID years. Uh, It wasn't a great time for the fabric of democratic society. But shocks can be responded to negatively. They can also be responded to positively. And in I think it was in March 2020, so really very early on in the pandemic, I wrote a piece on my blog, uh, which I'll be publishing uh, in a book in a couple of months called The Great Seclusion, hearkening back to Michel Foucault's Great Confinement, which I discussed in episode 98, Madness and Western Civilization Today. I wrote a piece that asked Uh, Might this voluntary great seclusion, which was a term I sort of used to evoke Foucault's great confinement and describe this amazing social experiment of locking everyone up in their houses, uh, might this voluntary great seclusion also give birth to something better in our cultural lives, even in the face of many deaths and great tragedies? something that we will not want to give up when business and the authorities call us to return to normal later in the year. What will the great seclusion reveal to us all? We can hope it will reveal some better ways to live and work and play than those we have institutionalised over the last 50 years. And we certainly, I think, did. Many people found new ways of reflecting on their lives, new habits, new work patterns, new social relationships that were positive responses to this great shock of the pandemic. It might take us another 50 years to process just what happened during this complex global event and its shockwaves through our inner lives. But what is the right way of telling the story of what just happened to us all? While we're taking a little break between segments, let me just remind you that you can join my free weekly newsletter at jeffrich.substack.com it's Jeff with a J, J-E-F-F-R-I-C-H dot substack dot com. 
you can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can also buy my books at all good online uh, book retailers, including Amazon and Kobo and Barnes and Noble and Booktopia, including my most recent book of essays from the Burning Archive. Okay, let's head on back to the show. So the second segment of the podcast connects the big issue in world affairs, the pandemic, to real events in history. And we can get some perspective on the pandemic years by looking specifically, I think, at a thing called the history of emotions, the history of feelings. Of course, a lot of people have looked to explain the pandemic back at the history of pandemics. From day one of the pandemic, people were using history to make sense of the shared experience we were having. Boccaccio's uh, Decameron and Defoe's Diary of the Plague in London were back on the bestseller list after centuries. And all those articles on the 1918 Spanish influenza epidemic were dusted down. Other people also looked to the history of democratic breakdown or totalitarianism to explain what was going on, to explain why our democracies seem to be collapsing. People also had many theories about the mental health of our democracies or the mental disorders of fellow citizens to explain how people responded to this great collective experience and many of these explanations of events some of which were historical metaphors are deployed tropes of madness mental illness or evil mind doctors people wondered whether the response to COVID, the enthusiastic initial embrace of life under lockdown uh, reflected this sort of yearning for collective identity in a society troubled by anime as Emil Durkheim predicted from the start of the 20th century. There was much discussion of misinformation and derangement of various outgroups and how technology and social media were leading people to lose their minds. Laura Dodsworth wrote a fine book called State of Fear, A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponized Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic That castigated the unethical coercive techniques employed through behavioural psychology in behavioural insights groups both in Britain and in many other countries including Australia, including the Victorian government's own behavioural insights team. One major theory was what was called mass formation psychosis and this theory by the i think it's belgian psychologist matthias desmet or desmay compared compared the social psychology of the covid response to the social psychology of mass authoritarianism in germany in the 1930s he described it as a kind of collective psychosis, a mass formation psychosis. He 
using that historical comparison, asked why people would surrender freedom to a totalitarian bio-state regime. And he argued that a lonely, disconnected, anxious population with no meaningful purpose in life was manipulated by a consistent narrative from government officials, mass media, health leaders and other authorities. And while uh, Desmet's ideas gave many people an alternative way of thinking in some dark times, and I think many people were grateful for that, ultimately I think the comparison the historical comparison, the historical model he used comparing with 1930s totalitarianism broke down on closer examination. There was certainly viral spread of dogmatism, intolerance and zealous uncertainty. And I myself was quite prepared to at least contemplate the possibility that we were no longer a functional democracy. But the only alternative to democracy is not fascism. And it could even be this weird thing that I described in one post on my blog at that time as a a post-democratic society. More on that later in the podcast. Ultimately, I think Desmet's story was too reliant on an oversimplified model of, of the diseased political personality and a manipulative leadership elite. It did not really respect how we were all driven in the pandemic. We were all driven a bit crazy in the pandemic by complex mixes of emotion and situations, including some of those mixes of m- of emotion and situations uh, stimulating not just collective psychosis, not just collective hypnosis, but a, you know, protective, supportive, caring responses for others. So rather than learn from history through metaphors of mental illness in social psychology or histories of democratic breakdown in Germany in the 1930s, I would point to an alternative approach, which is a sub-discipline of history known as the history of emotions. Now, last week on the podcast, in podcast 98, Madness and Western Civilization Today, we learned how mental illness has a history, and so too do emotions feelings and their expressions are shaped by culture and learned or acquired in social contexts. What somebody can and may feel and how they might show it uh, in any given situation towards certain people or things depends heavily on social norms and rules as well as the fundamentals of human psychology. It is thus historically variable and open to change. And the pandemic was an extraordinary example of how various emotional regimes, various emotional codes, various emotional lexicons can shape our action and in turn be changed by events and social conditions, by media trends and by social 
pressures. People bonded with emotional communities in Italy and England where they all clapped for the DHS. Uh, We're all deeply affected by images relayed from around the world, around one or other crisis. People conformed with emotional regimes, tones of uh, the right way to feel about what was going on that was set by governments and media and sometimes exploited fears and hatreds for unacknowledged purposes. People adopted emotional styles with the new presentation of self on Zoom and videos and new forms of greeting and new patterns of social distancing. Shaking hands was verboten. And it was all a lot more complex than an idea of mass psychosis or or there are some people who understand the science and there are some people who are just patsies for misinformation or and it was all a lot more complex than democracy versus authoritarianism. And what's more, it involved all of us as individuals in collectives, not just manipulation by elites, not just manipulation of nut jobs or sheeple, using those terms obviously in quote marks as terms that people used during the pandemic. It was all a lot more embodied, emotional and visceral than ideas and systems, ideologies of democracy and totalitarianism. And so I think the idea of the history of emotions can provide a better framework for understanding the strangeness of our experience over the last three years. We can't just fit it into a rational framework. We can't just denigrate it by describing it as psychotic. We need to accept that the the life of the emotions is fundamental to our lives and similarly the history of emotions is fundamental to our histories and what's more i think it's a better framework for ex- for for recovering from this experience there has been an awful lot of fear and loathing shame and humiliation in the discourse of democracies over the last three years and it has not been good for our health, it has not been good for our mental health, it has not been good for our uh, ways of government, for our democracy. If we are to live together, we need to recognise ourselves as not just ideas or identities or sovereign individuals, but as complex, embodied people who experience divided, conflicting, ever-changing emotions. And uh, we all face the dilemma of how to move beyond these last three or even more years of an awful lot of fear and loathing. Uh, Martha Nussbaum, who is an American political philosopher, has written extensively on the emotions in political thought, in, in a way, on the history of emotions, and has presented ideas on the compassionate and constructive use of emotions as a way 
forward to ideas in some ways shaped the approach of the Royal Commission into uh, institutional responses to childhood sexual abuse and their wonderfully sensitive response to the collective traumas experienced by victims of child sexual abuse, whether perpetrated by the church or other institutions. And she actually wrote a book in 2018 setting out how fear presents problems for democratic government. Her immediate thinking was it was a response to, I guess, the backlash against globalisation, the backlash of Brexit and Donald Trump, the resurgence of a fear-driven populism uh, that was bringing down the values of liberal democracy. And uh, she wrote this book called The Monarchy of Fear in 2018. And as we take our break, as we move into the fragment of the Burning Archive, let's listen to what Martha Nussbaum has to say. Of course, in a democracy, you've got to do what people want to do. And uh, so, so the people have to want to do things that are noble. So, so that's what I was puzzling about. I still think that the core of political justice is given in the form of principles and that those principles ought to be embodied in a constitutional framework of some sort. Uh, so the question is really how to sustain and support those. And if we're going to do that well, then the emotions have to be of a certain sort. That we need two things that I talk about in the book. Number one, a bridge. A bridge from narrower, more particularistic emotions to broader, more inclusive, principle-embracing emotions. And second, since emotions are always in their nature somewhat particularistic, we also need a continual dialogue and a critical dialogue between the emotions that the political culture cultivates and the principles that the political culture is built upon. So how to arrange for that bridge and how to arrange for that dialogue. So yes, we need to build a bridge, we need to build connection, and we need to reduce the amount of fear and loathing we expose ourselves to day to day. We need to do that if we're to recover our mental health, and if we are to recover a decent shared life of the mind in our commonwealths, in our republics. Uh, and we could do that, of course, by looking at a fragment of from the Burning Archive. And when we do so, we might discover a long tradition of reflection on the limitations of democracy well before the pandemic. A reflection on whether we had moved into what, in the 1990s, the political philosopher Colin Crouch described as a post-democracy, a kind of society or polity where the outward forms of democracy were still there, but the real living culture, the spirit of democracy was no longer practiced. We might even discover that 
even before all the fear and loathing of the pandemic, people wondered if our societies are not the same democracies we once thought they were. And one such fragment from the Burning Archive is John Donne, an English political philosopher, an eminent English political philosopher's book uh, from 2014, before Trump, before Brexit, before the pandemic, called Breaking the Spell of Democracy. A book I'd read and contemplated quite significantly well before the pandemic, but which I returned to during the pandemic and in a text that I wrote in April 2021, coincidentally the month that I began this podcast, I speculated on this idea of the post-democratic society based on John Donne's book, Breaking the Spell of Democracy. And there I wrote, But when I look at the actual conditions... Uh, noting that so that that there was a lot of discussion about democracy versus authoritarianism etc in the early uh, part of 2020 when i look at the actual conditions of our political institutions culture and actors especially in the wake of the great seclusion of 2020 the response of our governing elites to the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic I see a theatrical performance of democracy combating autocracy, stage-managed by manipulative politicians and celebrity journalists. But outside the walls of the circus, in the great feral city of our distressed republics, I see a post-democratic society growing over the ruins of democracy. Perhaps the new autocrats and the new populists, people like Orban or Trump, etc., arrived at a post-democratic society first, or at least without the illusion that American democracy is the end of history. Perhaps we should see their struggle as akin to ours, how to fashion a decent republic in a post-democratic society. Democracy as a concept cannot save us from the difficulties, injustices and failures of this new set of political institutions. We would do well to break the spell of democracy as the English political theorist John Donne has urged us to do. In Breaking Democracy's Spell, he asked... Why does this word democracy now hold such singular political authority? Where is the power that lurks so strangely within it? What exactly is it that modern populations are consenting to when they subject themselves to democracy's sway? Dunn's response was to say that In essence, democracy is above all a formula for imagining subjection to the power and will of others without sacrificing personal dignity or voluntarily jeopardising individual or family interests. 
Then I asked, can we say, after more than a year of masks, lockdowns, seclusions, arrests of dissenters, celebration of some protesters and designation of others as domestic terrorists and conspiracy theorists, Big tech, censorship, big media, collusion, and so on, that this formula still keeps our personal dignity safe. The post-democratic society has arrived. We need to find our own new way in the feral cities of our distressed republics. There is no easy recourse to live well among friends and strangers in a political community that is no longer entranced by democracy, that is no longer under the spell of democracy. But we now are all survivors of, de- of the fall of democracy and we may yet find close to home in our own dignity, ordinary virtue, and living in truth, a way to some new, decent polity. Thinking about that issue uh, gave birth to this podcast in April 2021, and I still think about the dilemma of how we solve our problems of governing our shared lives on this messed up planet and in all the diverse societies of the multipolar world. Indeed, I have begun a new book, Project Life After Western Democracy, on just that topic. But I will include my essay on the post-democratic society, my full essay in on the post-democratic society in my substack this week and I'll also be include so you can join that you can get that for free at jeffrich.substack.com and I'll also be publishing that and some other essays I've written on the pandemic and what what it all means for democracy and our mental health in my forthcoming book uh, 13 Ways of Looking at a Bureaucrat, and I'll, I'll keep all the listeners of the podcast posted on that in uh, the weeks ahead. Whether or not we live in democracies, we can all work to shift the mood from the fear and loathing of the COVID years to hope and love and a different emotional regime in the years ahead. We do not need to wait on elites or the mainstream media or the latest medical advice to do any of that. We can all use our own mindful history to foster compassion and care and connection and take a break from all the rage anecdotes denouncing the latest outcast, denouncing the latest person who has infringed one or other rule. And we can all take a break from the rage anecdotes uh, across all the whole political spectrum, the whole social and cultural spectrum on our ever effervescent social media. So my next episode of the podcast is Do You Believe It? 
episode 100. So it will be a bit of a centenary celebration next time. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that, but I think that's a significant milestone to get to 100 podcast episodes. And after that, I plan to talk in episode 101 back on the theme I've been pursuing in the last couple of episodes about mental health. And I plan to talk about my experiences in government as a very, very minor government official dealing with various aspects of mental health and exploring a little what we can learn from history about learn from history and from my own lived experience why governments seem to mess up mental health and mental illness so often so until then uh, everyone please do take care of your mental health please take down the temperature on the fear and loathing and turn up the dial on the hope and love and do remember that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee what thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee <laughs>